here in a message series called Binge Worthy, and we have been talking about culture, we've been talking about movies, and uh, we've been talking about um, how culture relates to Scripture. Now, some people have a hard time with this, and some, some old school Christians would, because they say, you know, culture is culture, just leave culture and let it be, and then let's just talk about the Bible. We, we are part of culture, okay? Um, uh, Christians are part of culture, Amen. Like, we're here. We can't avoid it. And Jesus said we're the salt of the earth. Uh, we can't be salt if we stay in the shaker. Amen, somebody. We're only effective if we let God shake us out onto, onto the culture. So we've got to know what culture is about. What does culture emulate? What does culture worship? What does culture love? What does culture reveal about us? And then we turn to Scripture. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you got a Bible, go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, because Scripture speaks to us. So culture is part of us. Scripture speaks to us. We resonate with culture because we're also human. We're also wrestling with the flesh, the ugly side of us, some people would say. But we need Scripture, and that is important because it is God's Word to us. And we are made in the image of God. So this is why we do things like binge-worthy and we talk about movies or shows and the Bible. is because both res resonate with us. And while culture might reflect us, Jesus through his word can change us. Amen, somebody. And so I want to talk to you. It's going to feel a little bit like Father's Day today. It's going to be a little bit of a Father's Day message. But I don't want to feel like all the women now can just kind of check out or elbow their husbands the entire time. We're going to speak to everybody. And here's the title. The reason why I say this is because the title is right there in your notes. Cobra Kai and the faith my father gave me. When I say father, and ladies, you can feel free to do this. You can cross out father and put mother. I, I, I'm not just talking to fathers, but I do believe that fathers are essential in our culture. They're essential to children. They're essential to the family. We live in an age where fathers are derided. We live in an age where men are derided. When um, the male gender, and there is only one male gender, amen, is um, being vilified and blamed for everything and add whiteness to it, and there you go. You basically got Hitler reincarnated. I mean, this is where our culture has has crazy has 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 ridiculously led us to hate a certain person based on the color of their skin um, or their gender, uh, and and we've got to remember that culture is always wrestling with the problems of the past without the author of life. That's really what culture is doing. And so while culture can seem crazy at times, we go to scripture because we know that the truth is there. What culture doesn't have, God has. And he said in his word that we shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Yeah, set us free. So we're going to go to the scriptures about the importance of fatherhood and motherhood. But really what I'm talking about is spiritual mentorship. Can I get everybody to say mentorship on the count of three? One, two, three. Mentorship. mentorship. That's really what this message is about. Spiritual mentorship. Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Anybody a fan of the Karate Kid movies, uh, video people, uh, other locations here, Karate Kid? I was raised on a steady diet of Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi. Wax on. Wax off. Paint the fence. Paint the house. Come on, right? I love those movies. 
And I was raised on them, and I just, you know, got inspired. I was like, man, you know, what I should really do for the church is just a little demonstration to show you. I mean, that's, whoo, come on. Of course, what you don't know is how much I had to saw through the board before service to get that right. <laughs> Didn't know how that was going to go. Pray for my hand. Amen. Karate Kid was a cultural phenomenon, spoke to people like me. I was born in the 70s, but I was raised in the 80s. And, and, and in the 1980s, there were two evil empires for 10-year-old boys. There were two evil empires in the 1980s for 10-year-old boys. The Soviet Union and Cobra Kai. <laughs> Cobra Kai was the evil empire of 1980s film and television. And it was the bully Empire, right? Daniel LaRusso, raised by a single mom, New Jersey. They go across the country. She relocates her and her son to LA and, and he gets into school. But then before you know it, he's getting beat up by this gang of kids led by Johnny Lawrence. Johnny Lawrence, who everybody hated in the 1980s, right? He was the pretty boy. He had the quaff of blonde hair covering his forehead, the leather jacket the cool motorbike, car, girlfriend. He had the looks, and he was the top karate champion in the all-valley region of L.A. in the 1980s. And Johnny Lawrence just picks a fight over and over again with, with, with Daniel LaRusso. It's not much of a fight. Daniel LaRusso is getting his butt kicked every single time he turns around. Some of it Daniel LaRusso brought on himself. But Johnny Lawrence was the original 1980s bad boy and pretty boy wrapped into one. And everything that we hate about him from the movies and, well, the first movie, Karate Kid, we, we realized was a facade, really, through this new show that they, they, have, they started to produce called Cobra Kai, which is on Netflix, started on YouTube, but now it's on Netflix. And it's a series where it doesn't really focus on Daniel LaRusso. It focuses on Johnny Lawrence. In fact, the first scene is with Johnny Lawrence waking up now in today's world. And he is a shadow of his former self. Where he was from the rich side of town, he is now broke. Where he looked like he had everything going for him, he has nothing going for him. He's working a dead-end job. He's a deadbeat dad. He's divorced. He's an alcoholic. He's drinking Coors Banquet for breakfast. He's cooking Spam in the morning watching 1980s movies, listening to 1980s music, and driving the epitome of the 1980s cool car, a red Pontiac Firebird. I mean, he is living in the past. And so that brings me to the first clip. Watch this. So that's the opening scene of the show, if you haven't watched it yet. And really what you see is that the script has completely flipped from the 1980s. Whereas Daniel was the poor kid with the broken home and living in, you know, the lower class apartments. He's now a owner of multiple automobile uh, stores across the All Valley region and a wild success. And, and Johnny Lawrence is now what Daniel LaRusso was. And that's where the story begins. And we find some amazing things out about fatherlessness in this show. Because what we realize is that the Johnny Lawrence that we saw in the 1980s was actually just a facade. It was just a facade. Really, the backstory that they present in the show is that he was also fatherless. His father either left or died. We don't know for sure from the show. 
his biological father. And his mother, this poor single mom, decides to marry a rich upper class erudite in L.A. who affords him the luxuries of high class living but does not give him the love of a biological or at least emotionally loving father. And he's only rich because his mother married up and he's much older than his mother and everything. And, And so the issues of his home life, not having a healthy relationship with his father, probably are what led him to join Cobra Kai in the first place, led by the most evil man for 10-year-olds in the 1980s, John Kreese. John Kreese would have been like, you know, the Stalin of the 1980s. And you could say that the reason why John Kreese had such an impact on Johnny Lawrence was because Johnny Lawrence didn't have a real close relationship with any father figure at home. And what we really see is this, is everyone... Everyone needs someone older than them to believe in them. Everyone needs a mentor. Really, we do. And if we don't get it from home, we can get it from somewhere else. But, but listen, I'm trying to tell you is that someone needs to believe in me. No, someone needs to believe in you. Someone needs to come alongside of us and put our arm around us as a father or mother figure. Amen? And, and say, I believe in you. You've got what it takes because the world is hard. Life is difficult. Challenges come. Bullies show up. And what are we going to do when they do? We need someone who will give us some mentorship, some guidance in life. And I already referenced it, but what we've got a real problem with in our country, I'm telling you right now, it is fatherlessness. It is fatherlessness. More children are born without their biological fathers than are born with them now in this country. And all the research shows that when you don't have a biological father or a father figure at home, it could be adoptive father, you're more likely to do drugs, more likely to end up in prison, more likely to live in poverty for the rest of your life. Dropout rates are astronomically high for fatherless kids. It's unbelievable what God proves in his word time and time again that when fathers and children are not connected in heart, there's a curse that comes upon the land. That's the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. And fatherlessness is a curse on our country and our, on our culture, and there is an answer for it. John Eldridge, he talks about this in his book, The Wild at Heart book, which I highly recommend. But he says the following, quote, We live in a time when most men are essentially fatherlessness, fatherless. They have no man taking them through the many adventures, trials, battles, and experiences they need to shape a masculine heart within them. They find themselves on their own trying to figure life out. Their fears, their anger, their boredom, and their addictions, many of these come out of a fatherless place within them, a fundamental uncertainty in the core of their being. A guy we're going to talk about later, his name's Donald Miller. He grew up without a father, and his mother, uh, you know, paraded him a bunch of deadbeat boyfriends his entire uh, young adult life. And he writes many books about this about fatherlessness and what it did to his own life. And he said that without fathers at home, women tend to become victimized and men tend to become oppressors. And and the reason why is because what does the scripture show us but a father who loves us in God? And not just loves us, but you've got to get this, you got to get these two thoughts together. A father with all the power in the universe, Right? All the power and strength in the universe that if he wanted to, he could squash us like a bug without even trying. But at the same time, a father with all that power and limitless compassion and love for us. And when you have a father like that, when you have a person like that in your life, it makes all the difference. 
someone with all the power in life that you need to give you strength and confidence and all the love and compassion that you could desire to give you that sense of belonging. We need this. We, we're dying for this. Well, that brings me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's, let's stand together because we're going to read this together at all of our locations. 1 Timothy chapter 1, just the first couple of verses and then some middle verses here in the chapter. Paul is writing, Paul the Apostle is writing this to a guy named Timothy. That's the name of the book. And he's become a spiritual father to a fatherless kid named Timothy, who is also the pastor of a church in the city of Ephesus in the first century. Listen to what he says in the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, and then the next three words, my true child. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God our Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Skip all the way down because we're going to get to the heart here of this passage, the opening, the opening of the letter. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. Interestingly enough, one of the key phrases of Cobra Kai is no mercy. I received mercy, he says, for this reason that in me as the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners, he says this, that Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Let me put it another way. That you might fight the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have absolute access to your presence through Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son. Speak. May my words be what you want them to be. May our ears hear and may our hearts receive truth that transforms us and roots us in your everlasting love. Help us to see Jesus, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Have a seat at all of our locations. Fatherlessness. There was a young man, pastor of a first century church in Ephesus. 2,000 years ago, pastoring a church in a very large city, probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire, Ephesus. You can go there today. It's a relic of what it once was. But it was a thriving metropolis, probably about 250,000 people in population. That would be um, um, uh, millions today. And, and a, a young, inexperienced guy named Timothy was the pastor of the first church of Ephesus. First church of Ephesus. He's young. He's got a believing mother and grandmother, but Scripture makes clear that he doesn't have a believing father. And uh, it, the Scripture says his father was a Greek. That's another way of saying he was an unbeliever. And so while he's got this great Christian heritage from his mother's side, his maternal side... His paternal side probably completely disconnected from Christian faith. Uh, probably wanted nothing to do with Timothy's 
chosen profession. Like you're not a belie- if you're not a believer, you're not really interested in your son who's leading a church. That, that, that's part of this upstart movement started by this unknown Galilean prophet named Jesus who they crucified. Like, like you, you got to see this in a modern context, how hard it is for young people when their father doesn't believe. But in the first century when Christianity in the Asian world was a minority group, like a, 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 a ridiculed group, a hated group, despised group. And Timothy is a pastor of a thriving church with a father who doesn't believe. And you know what he needed? He needed someone to put his arm around him and say, you got this, Timothy. Because if you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, I mean, this guy, this guy was so insecure. This guy was so needy for affirmation. The Bible has not one but two letters written to him from the apostle Paul. And, then we, and if you read First and Second Timothy, you can kind of glean insights into what was going on in Timothy's heart. First, we learned that Timothy was tremendously insecure. Young people t- typically are. They're insecure by nature because they're young. They don't know who they are. And Paul writes to him, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear. Another word is timidity. All right? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, sound mind. What we also find out about Timothy is that he's got some stomach issues. I don't know if he's got you know, uh, whatever, some disease that we would now be able to diagnose, but he's got stomach issues that he can't get over. And so Paul tells him, don't just drink water, have a little wine to settle your stomach. And all the sipping saints said, amen. You know what I'm talking about? But anyway, he's got some, he's got, I don't know how I got off there already. Right? Uh, he's got some some health problems. And, and I think about how many young people today growing up with health problems because of bad diet or bad hereditary issues or whatever. And so he's got health problems, he's got insecurity problems. He's got this, this uh, group of people in the church that are belittling him as well. Because Paul tells him, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, Timothy. So I wonder how many times he showed up to church, there was some old church goer, or some old church man saying, you're the pastor? Look at you, you, you can barely shave. You're not going to tell me anything. So he's got these, these guys looking down on him, and then, and then, hey, hey, he's a young man. Timothy was tempted just like every other young man. That's why Paul will write to him in in 2 Timothy. He'll say, flee the youthful desires of lust, Timothy. Don't have anything to do with that stuff. Get out of that stuff. That's That's what God saved you from. So just like every other young person on the planet, Timothy wrestled with the sin nature. And so Paul's writing these letters to Timothy to say, look, I got your back. And look at the first two verses again. We'll put up on the screen, 1 Timothy 1. He says, "To, to Timothy, my what? My true child in the faith. How awesome that must have been for Timothy. You're struggling. People look down on you. People are disbelieving in you. On top of it all, you got your own internal insecurities. You got this this stomach issue that won't go away. He's probably prayed time and time and time again. No healing for the issue. And to have Paul the apostle of all people, someone who met the Lord Jesus Christ personally, someone who had been to heaven personally, someone who wrote one-third of the New Testament, this giant of the faith right up there with Moses and Elijah, to have him write you a letter and say, Hey, Timothy, you are my true child. How powerful that must have been. You know what it teaches us? I want you to write this down first thing in your notes. We need a gospel sensei, (laughs) keeping with the Cobra Kai theme. (laughs) Because that's what this show is all about. It's about Johnny Lawrence finding himself becoming a sensei or a mentor in the Cobra Kai method. And Daniel LaRusso, in reaction, becomes a sensei in the Mr. Miyagi method. That's really what the show unpacks for four seasons. 
what young people, and I think about this, and I want you to hear me. If you're a young person, listen to me. And young is a relative term. So um, you need a sensei. You need someone who will mentor you and teach you. And older people, again, old is a relative term. You need to be one. Can I get a good amen from all the old people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've you got, you got to reach out to these people. And, and I think that this is one of the things that is missing sorely in the American church. In the American church, we're really good at having buildings and gatherings on Sunday. Like that's happening in almost every city in this country right now. We're really good at doing music. We're really good at preaching. We're really good at, you know, gathering on the weekend. But we're really bad at mentoring. It's, 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 it, what we are actually doing is we're, we're becoming victims of what our culture is doing. Dividing and conquering. You ever, you ever notice this about our culture right now? It's just constant division. White versus what? Black. Um, male versus female. And young versus old. Stupid millennials. Okay, boomer. Right? Right? That's, that's what's happening right now. And I'm telling you, this is the work of the devil. Because he is the God of division. He divided the angels in heaven. He's bringing division to our, our ethnicities. He's bringing division to our genders. He's bringing division to our aged and young. And he's doing that because he knows that if he can divide us, he can conquer us. But the answer to all this division is to reject the narrative that the news organizations want to put on us and to receive the uniting power of the Holy Spirit and tell each other, I don't care your skin color, I don't care your gender, I don't care where you come from. If you are in Christ, you are my brother or sister in Jesus' name. We're together. We're together. We're going to come together and we're going to beat the devil back because he hates when we come together and God loves when we come together. But we need a gospel sensei. And I think about my own life, the, the mentors that I had in my life, men who believed in me, Pastor James Wyke, who was the first guy to let me preach at the age of 19, like 19 years old. You don't let 19-year-old preach, 19-year-olds 19 year preach, but he did. And he gave me a chance to cut my teeth. I mean, there was only 12 people in the audience, but nonetheless... Gave me a chance to step up and try. And then I think about in college, I had a pastor. His name was Pastor Pete Privatera. Pastor Pete, Pri Pastor Privatera. I used to call him Pasta Primavera. Amen. I love that guy. And, and he let me lead worship. And he let me, you know, take charge of things. And he believed in me. And then he would take me, while I was in college, he would take me to diners. And he would treat me to lunch. I mean, when you're a co co poor college kid, man, somebody treating you to lunch is like heaven, right? You win a lottery. And I remember one time at that diner in Philadelphia, and he gave me a book. It was called The Purpose Driven Church, written by Rick Warren. And that book changed my life. And think about how many things can happen in your life when you have someone who believes in you. You know, Isaac Newton famously said the following. He said, I, if I have seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. And, 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 and so often, uh, older generations are following the dictates of this culture and the God of this world by despising younger generations. Oh, I don't like their music. I don't like how they dress. I don't like all the way they do. Okay, yeah. Let's back the truck up and talk about how your parents talked about you. Because they didn't like how you dressed either, did they? They, they? they didn't like those sock hops that you used to go to. Come on. 
They thought Elvis was the, sec the devil incarnate. Come on. Right? You compl they complained about your music, but you're complaining about their music. Look, you got, the, you, this younger generation, I'm telling you, I've, I've, I've felt this more now in the last five years, and especially after COVID, than ever before in my life. Young people in our culture are dying of thirst for someone who's older and been there and done that who will believe in them. Help me. I need help. I need to know how to be a father. I need to know how to be a mother. I need to know how to raise kids. I need to know how to find the right spouse. I mean, they are dying for this. And if the church just reflects the culture and that mantra and that narrative of division and hate the younger because they're stupid and uninformed, if we just follow the dictates of this culture, we will lose that generation to the God of this world. I want us to rise up and reject the narrative the devil has given us and believe that God is for us and he's going to bring us together to change the world in Jesus' mighty name. All that to sum up. Write this down if you're taking notes at all locations. Every Christian should have a Paul and a Timothy in their life. Think about this relationship, Paul and Timothy here. But, you know, Timothy would grow up. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, now what I've taught you, you teach other young men in your church. Isn't that, isn't that cool? This is, this is how the church carries on, ladies and gentlemen. This is how we continue on. Okay? Paul... Who's your, let me ask this question. Who is your Paul? And if you don't have one, get one. Let me ask this question. Who is your Timothy? Who have you decided to take under your wing, take under your arm, say, look, I believe in you. I love when our location pastors preach. I love it because I've invested in these men in classes, in training, to teach them to do that. It is one of the passions of my life. And I want them to do it with you guys. And you say, well, how do I get involved in this? Small group. Small group at our other locations down here in Florida. We do the men's night and women's night so far because we're a small church right now. But it'll grow. What are we doing? We're investing in relationships because you can, you can only grow so much by sitting here and staring at me for 45 minutes. And some of you are like, 45 minutes? What pastor, what preacher are you talking about? <laughs> um, okay, 55 minutes. All right, nonetheless, you can only grow so far that way. At some point, you have to stop facing front and facing each other and get to know each other and say, who are you? You know, I think about, I think about this. The, the best books that I've ever read, the best shows I've ever watched, the best restaurants I've ever eaten at were all recommended to me by a trusted person, trusted friend. What are you missing out on? Because you are trying to do Christianity isolated. You can't do it. You can't do it. It'll change you. The potential for new relationships is a potential to catapult your life forward. Oh, okay, i got to get to the message or we're never going to get done. Let's talk about faithful fathers or faithful mentors or faithful mothers, whatever you want to call. You can scratch out and put whatever you want there. A faithful father, number one, write this down, is transformed by grace. So what kind of mentor should I look for or what kind of mentor should I be? Answer, transformed by grace. Say that, say that with me on the count of three. One, two, three, transformed by grace. And that's exactly what Paul says. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Judged me faithful. Interesting phrase to say, judged me faithful. What is Paul saying? Is he saying, I, I checked off all the spiritual boxes and, and God and Jesus saw that I was worthy and so he judged me faithful and he made me an apostle. No. 
No, because look what he says in the next line. Appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. What it means to be judged faithful here is that God decided to make Paul faithful. To give Paul the power and the potential to transform the world by his grace. That's why he says, I thank him who gave me strength. Though formerly I was this, God made me that. And you got to understand something about your life. Because Paul is exhibit A, that God can take anyone, absolutely anyone, and transform them into a potent tool in the hand of God to transform the world. This guy hated Christianity. Jesus said, I'm going to make you a proponent of Christianity. This guy wanted Christians dead. He said, I'm going to make you turn Christians alive. That's what Paul is. That's who he is. Formerly, he was formerly that. And now he's ready to serve the world in the purposes of God. The words are so potent in this text. Blasphemer, that's somebody with abusive speech. Um, persecutor, that's somebody who's violent. He, 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 the scripture says he laid violent hands on the body of Christ before he was Christian. And then he says, instant opponent, the word is hypertes in Greek. It means an arrogant, we get hubris from it. It means an arrogant attitude. How many know you guys, you got a guy who's a abusive talker and a violent man and an arrogant man. You don't want that guy for your dad, right? Any man that lays a hand on his wife is anathema. And, and any man who abusively hits his children, I'm, I believe in spanking, but there's a line where you're not spanking anymore. You're just taking out your rage on your kid. And don't call yourself a Christian. That's abusive. And, 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 and this is who Paul was. He says, that's who I was. Back to Cobra Kai, that's who Johnny Lawrence was. Why? Because he was trained by John Kreese. And the show shows this, that just to kind of stick it to Daniel LaRusso, he resurrects Cobra Kai. And the mantra of Cobra Kai, three-word mantra. Kenny's got it on his shirt over here. Strike first, strike hard. What's the last line? No mercy. No mercy. <laughs> like, doesn't get any less Christian than that, does it? Like Jesus was like, hey, when they strike you in the cheek, strike first. No, no, he's like, you know, right? And so he starts this dojo cobra kai up again to train young kids to do what ruined his life why because when you're not tethered to something good you'll tether yourself to anything even the tyranny of your past that's where he is so ironically as he's training kids in cobra kai danny LaRusso is training kids in miyagi uh, mr miyagi's uh, mantras and one of the kids that Daniel LaRusso takes under his wing is the biological son of Johnny Lawrence. It great, creates great tension, and they finally meet up in Home Depot after Johnny Lawrence's student beat Daniel LaRusso's students, students uh, Daniel, Johnny Lawrence's biological father, in the championship match. Watch this. So Johnny Lawrence is confronted more and more with the reality of what poison he has ingested with and through Cobra Kai and he's lost his son and his son in the process and, and it's a testimony to the reality that he knows he needs to change look if, if you want to be used by God, God to change people to be a mentor you need to change but here's the bad news you can't change 
You can't change. And this is the truth of every human life. We know it every single January and February because every January 1st, we try to change, and every February, we're back to who we were. You can't change who you are. Only God can change you. And that's what Paul the Apostle tells Timothy. I was an abusive, hateful, violent killer. Verse 13, though. But I received what? Mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly. And the grace. Somebody say grace. The grace of the Lord. Look at that next word. Everybody say it. Overflowed. The word is like a spring just gushing up plenty of water. The, the, the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, here's the power of the grace of God. I said this a couple weeks ago. Hear it again. The grace of God is not just God's ability to forgive you of your sins. The grace of God is God's favor over you to produce in you a different character, a different mindset, a different heart, a different life. The grace is God's power to change you. And Paul says, the grace overflowed in my life, and I'm a new person because of Jesus Christ. Is that true for you? Amen. Like, that's, that's who I am. I'm not up here because I'm a good person. I'm up here because of the grace of Almighty God. And it's good news for anybody who feels like they aren't worthy to be used by God. Because if Paul could change, if God could change Paul, God can change you. Because I'm pretty sure I could ask about all your unspiritual resumes before Jesus in this house, and I bet none of you would say that in your former life you used to kill Christians. But Paul did. Here's what I want you to write down. Anyone can be used for God because anyone can be changed by God. If you want to be a gospel mentor, if you want to be a gospel sensei, that's all it requires. Just let God change your life. You say, how do I do that? Surrender. Give up. Stop trying to be a good person or a religious person or an evil person and give your life. Surrender your life to Christ. Number two, write this down. Faithful fathers refuse to be fake. This is perhaps the most important point of the message. You want to be a gospel mentor? Don't be fake. Don't be a hypocrite. Can we understand what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. That's what hypocrisy is. And a lot of people like to say, the church is full of hypocrites. And then I used to say, that's true, and it wouldn't mind one more. Like, <laughs> come and join us. We're all hypocrites. Well, I changed that. Because a hypocrite is someone who says, acts in a way that they don't believe. That's what a hypocrite is. They're an actor. But Christians, we believe that God had to forgive us. We had to, and, and by the way, we still believe that God has to forgive us. Amen, somebody. A anybody have a perfect record over the last, um, let's say, one week? Anybody? Perfect record? Didn't sin at all this last week? Anybody? No one? Shocking. Let's, uh, how about 48 hours? Anybody have a, a good last 48 hours? 48 hours? How many of you are sinning right now? You're like, yeah, I got nothing on this. I can't even <laughs> forget it. Just forget it. Like, right? That's who we are. And it's not hypocrisy to say, I'm a sinner who still needs grace. It's hypocrisy to say, I've arrived and I'm a good person. That's hypocrisy, because you're not. How do I know? Because Paul wasn't. Look at verse 15. Probably two of my favorite verses in all of the corpus of Paul, 
Pauline theology. Here's what he says. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I got it in the NIV because I like the way it says it here. I'm the worst sinner. By the way, if you got your paper notes out, just circle am. Circle the word am. I am the worst. He didn't say I was, does he? I am the worst. And then he goes on. But I, for this reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. I am the worst. This is Paul, chosen by God to bring the gospel to the nations, to bring the gospel to you through the writings in the Bible. And he's saying to us, I'm the worst. What is that about? You know what it's about? It's about what true Christian spirituality is. Let me unpack something for you, because I don't know everybody here, and I don't know everybody watching by video, but can I tell you that true Christian spirituality is not thinking you're getting better, it's understanding that you're getting worse and Christ is still enough. There's a story in John chapter 8. There's a story in John chapter 8. They bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. You know the story? And they say, Moses' law says, kill her. What do you say? And they're trying to trap Jesus because the law of the land didn't allow Jews to, cap to practice capital punishment. So if he said kill her, he would have broken Roman law. They would have gotten him killed. If he says don't kill her, he would have broken the Mosaic law and he would have gotten ostracized by the Jews. So he says let him who is out sin uh, cast the first stone. One of the greatest lines in all the Bible. But pay attention to the next line. Because it says this, beginning with the oldest. They all left one by one. And I always ask, why did the oldest leave first? Do you know why the oldest left first? Do you know why? Because he had more sin in his life. Why? Because he had just lived longer. He had just lived longer. You, you ever get to that point where you're like, when am I ever going to stop? Anybody ever get to that point? If you haven't gotten to that point, it's because you're 12 years old. That's why. Just live exactly one more year, you'll realize, oh my gosh, there's things that I just can't change. I, yeah, that's right. We are sinners in need of God's saving grace to transform us and change us. And, and growing in Christ, while we may transform in character, and we do, we do, we grow in an ever greater awareness of how much of us needs to change. See, it's not just not killing my neighbor. It's also not cursing my neighbor. And it's also not hating my neighbor. And it's also not just ignoring my neighbor. And it's actually caring about my neighbor. And not just caring, but loving my neighbor. And not just loving my neighbor, but what? Loving him as myself. Quick question. How many of us did that this week? How many? <laughs> no one. Man, I am here on a purpose. Hallelujah. It's hard, and it's not in us because we are fleshly and sinful. We need the grace of God to empower us. And Johnny Lawrence needs to make this transformation. Now, he does it in a secular way, and for the sake of the story and the, and the message that I'm preaching, I'm just going to give you another last clip here of, of how we see Johnny Lawrence actually transform and come back together with his son because what happens is his Cobra Kai mantra actually gets into his son in the third season, and then his son starts to train Another young man in the Cobra Kai mantra, and Johnny is watching the poison from his past get into his son and into a kid that his son is training, and his son gets startled awake to the poison of Cobra Kai. Watch this. Isn't it amazing how even the world understands we need that? 
Even the world knows that we carry hate in our heart, and if it doesn't get changed, it just creates more of a mess in our life. And this is why we need mentors. We need mentors who are changed by the gospel, but secondly, not fake, not fake. Parents, listen up, because this is important for you. Donald Miller, who I mentioned before, raised without a father, had a slew of his mother's boyfriends kind of like abuse him and mistreat him his whole entire teenage life. Eventually he grew up, he became a man, and he found a woman, and he got married, and he was scared to death of having children because he knew what his lack of father and his mother did to his life. So he's a researcher and an author and an incredible writer, and, and um, he decided to do a survey to figure out how can I not screw up my kids. And he wanted to find out what's the difference between a child that is raised in a Christian home and stays in the faith and the child that was raised in a Christian home and departs the faith. And he did a whole survey of, I think he did like a thousand adult children raised in a Christian faith. And time and time and time again, it was one common denominator that kept kids in the faith. Here it was. Christian parents who were honest about their own failures with their kids. The Christian parents who acted one way on Sunday and never said I'm sorry and never acknowledged their own weaknesses and failures. Their kids grew up and left the faith as fast as they could. And the Christian parents who had children and they were honest and they were vocal about it and they would tell children, look, that temper you've got, that probably comes from me. I'm still wrestling. Let's do this together. Jesus is working on you. He's working on me. Can I tell you that parenting can be such a blessing when you're honest about what you're struggling with with your kids? you got to have some you know, sense about that and what you say, but at the same time, the honesty and the, and the genuineness of Christian faith being expressed not in this holier-than-thou attitude, but in a humility that acknowledges that Jesus needs to save me because I'm also the worst. And let me just tell you, you know why Paul says I'm the worst? Because he was the worst sinner he knew. And let me tell you why you should say I'm the worst. Because you are the worst sinner you know. You know what's going on up in here. Nobody else does. You do. You and God. And if you're honest, you'll be able to say I am the worst. And here's what he says in verse 16 one more time. I receive mercy for this reason, that as the worst of sinners, Christ might show me off to the world. That's what he's saying. That Christ might put me as a trophy on his shelf of grace. Show the world this is what I can do with people. Look at what I can do with Paul. He can do it with you. He can mentor you into a mighty man or a mighty woman of God who will mentor others and change a generation for Jesus. That's why in verse 17 he says, to the king of the ages, to Jesus, not to me, to, the, to Jesus, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It's not what you bring to the table. It's what Jesus brings to the table. Number three, a faithful father, watch this, write this down, commends us to fight for the gospel. Now the good news is this is a very short point. So I'm about to close. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, we as mentors or mentees, we're in a fight. And that's what Paul says here in verse 18. He says, this charge, and the word charge in Greek is a military term. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. What warfare? What, what warfare? I thought church was just coming, sitting quiet, and being nice for an hour. No. We are in a battle. We are in a fight. You know what this is right now? This is time out. 
<laughs> That's what this is. Because there's a fight waiting for you outside these doors at all of our locations. There's a fight waiting for you when you get home today. That's why time and time again, you come out of church and you're like, I feel so blessed. And you walk into your house and before you know it, you're cursing everybody out again. Because the fight's waiting for you out there. And you got to fight the good fight. And you need someone or you need to be someone for someone else who says, man, we're all in this together. And this thing is serious. And the gospel is under attack. So fight for it. Now, notice that I say fight for the gospel. Because there are two parallel, there are two opposite end spectrums that come at us in the centrality of the gospel. Here, here's, here's what those two are. Pay attention real quick. Number one is the obvious one. I'm no good. I'll never get better. God doesn't love me. I've sinned too much, and I'm just going to go and do my own thing now. That's called rebellion. And it's always pulling on God's people. It's always pulling on God's people. Some of you walked into church today, and you walked into church today with a cloud of guilt hanging over your head because you felt like you just did so much bad this week. There's no way God could possibly love you. And if you were to be honest, you said, I'm on the, I'm on the fringe of just going that way and never coming back again. You need to fight against that because His grace will overflow to the worst of sinners. And on the other end of the spectrum is a far more subtle and yet even more heinous enemy of the gospel. It's called religion. It's called, I am doing good. I, I am doing better. Look at me. Look at my life. Look at how far. I, I am a good Christian. No, you're not. You're a sinner in need of grace today. You've just gotten better at faking it. That's just, that's just religion. Can I tell you that pride is a problem? Religious pride is a nuclear weapon. It destroys people. The people who missed Jesus, the people who didn't recognize him when he came, the Pharisees, the religious people, the people who demanded that he be crucified, the insiders of the churchianity kind of crowd, the insiders of the religious crowd, they wanted him dead because he confronted them with their hypocrisy and they hated him for it. That's another enemy of the gospel. Here's how you stay central in the gospel. You say, Lord Jesus, I need your grace today. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to make a bad case of my life. I know who I am. You know who I am. I know I'm the worst sinner, but by your grace, I pray, get glory out of my life today so that other people can see not me, but Christ in me. Summing it all up, sermon in the sentence, write this down. The gospel brings us to God by his grace so that we can become what he wants and influence those he brings our way. That's what the gospel does. The gospel tells us God's good. He's good enough for you right now. He's better than enough for you right now. He's more than enough for you right now. If you've sinned too much, his grace abounds much more than your sin. If you've made a mess of your life this past week, this past year, this past decade, God's got ages of grace in store for you. And at the same time, don't fool yourself to think that you can ever get on your way without his help and without his grace. You need to stay rooted and grounded in Christ today so that people will look at you and see the joy of the Lord, the thankfulness that you know, that though you might be the worst sinner you've ever known, you're far more loved than you could ever imagine. Because that's who he is. And that's what he does with sinners. And that's what he'll do with you.